0: Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome back to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvarowski. On this week's episode, I welcome Jason Apps, Steve Doby, and Jeff Naylor to the show. We discuss maintenance and reliability in mining, important metrics for mobile maintenance, and the differences between technical and leadership skills. If your company sells products or services to engage maintenance and reliability professionals, tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project. And if you'd like to discuss advertising on the Rob's Reliability Project content, please send me an email to Project at gmail.com. If you haven't yet, please sign up for my newsletter at robsreliability.com. There's a weekly newsletter that has some bonus content that you can't find anywhere else, so definitely get on that. As well as that, please tell your colleagues to subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project Podcast and subscribe yourself on your favorite podcast platform as well as follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Now let's get into the interview about mining. Good afternoon. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. We have a special panel of guests today. We have Steve Doby from Tech Resources. We have Jason Apps from Arms Reliability. And we have Jeff Naylor from Surf Roundtables. Guys, how are you doing?
1: Good. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, really good. Thanks. Thanks
2: for having us. Yeah, really good. Thanks, Rob. Looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun. We're, we're going to talk a little bit today about maintenance and reliability in mining. You know, we, before we started the call, we talked a little bit about camp diets and eating. So let's let's get rolling now. And, and we'll start off with the first question we got. Is, I actually thought it was one of the best questions that we've gotten on this. This is our 10th webinar, so it's been pretty good. And so the question comes in and it says, with respect to reliability engineering specifically, what's the worst thing about the Australian mining industry? Now, Steve and I, we can't comment on Australian mining, but we'll comment on Canadian mining. So why don't we start off, Jeff, you're you're filling the screen. What do you think?
1: Okay, all right. So uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, organizations still operating in reactive mode. So, um, you know, that means there's a lot of firefighting going on, verbalising issues. We're too busy to follow some structured problem-solving process. Um, we're too busy, and where you know people get trained up with the buddy system, so they're learning the same ways that problems have been fixed before. And when this happens, this is what you fix. So there's a lot of that stuff going on in places that we see, and uh, so the same fixes happen again and again and repeat issues, and so you just continue the cycle of reactivity. Um, I'd, I'd say uh, you know, we, we all have our circle of control around what, what we have autonomy over to make decisions on, and people have a reasonable idea of, of what that is and the limits they can go to, but uh, I would say that the circle of influence or their circle of influence, most people far underestimate the circle of influence that they possess and that they don't, they can't utilise that properly because they don't apply tools uh, w- uh, well and in a structured way. And then, obviously, we have a circle of control, a circle of concern, so, you know, well, we we still have concern about Donald Trump over here, so there's always that, but... Um, so, um, you know, in terms of that, I'd say problem-solving is a big issue for um, what we see, and, you know, the, the application of not just... Um, yeah, you know, we're all we're all taught through our careers that here's a problem, fix it, or you know just get us back up and going because the, the downtime of these facilities is huge in terms of cost. So um, you know the application of, of anything from a 5Y process through 5 ya 3 and RCA, it's it's not just you know we see everything from uh, not applying anything to five random Ys to and trying to solve the world with every problem, getting an RCA and just drowning in this stuff. So um, the right, the right application of tools, are, I think, is really important. So um, and escalating, you know. So so the the need for culture change is there, and I think if we're verbalizing, we're not really doing that. We're we're repeating the same sins uh, application of um, of these things in terms of team based boards and and the like. Uh, can really get them engaged in what they're doing and start resolving the ones that are in their circle of control, but then escalating uh, with analysis and recommendations to genuinely engage management in, uh, here's some options that we can put forward and people can start steering the direction of the business. Uh, that's where I think you know, th- there's, there's different levels of, of um, development. Some are really advanced and some are really still... Yeah, breaking rocks so uh we've really got to you know there's still a few that uh you break them we fix them um and you can you know as you know in this group you know you can you can flog maintenance to death but you're only going to get so far on the reliability curve so uh, if that helps give any information uh hopefully
0: yeah absolutely i mean we've all i'm sure we've all seen the reactive the reactive organizations as well as people who are not even doing just five why some of them do one why or, or mm-hmm. just blame somebody. So we've all seen that now, Jason, what do you think is the biggest problem in Australian mining?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. This one, wasn't it? I I'm not sure that Australian mining is terribly different to, to any other industry to be quite honest. In this <laughs> um, so it's probably not terribly specific except for the fact that, um, we certainly have witnessed over the last, I don't know, decade or more that you can see miners chasing the dream, right? They're, they're really focused on chasing the dream of reliability and that and usually manifests in them playing around with the org structure as far as we see. So, you know, we hire reliability engineers. We probably have a corporate group. We go through the sort of bus times and we haven't got too much money. So we get rid of the corporate group and we sort of centralise and we decentralise and we go around and around and around the, roundabout um, with the org structure to change the, the title of reliability engineers to improvement engineers and all, all manner of things that I think to try and chase the dream what, what I see that's missing really the worst thing for me is that we don't we don't have any framework supporting reliability engineers and what they're supposed to do Jeff mentioned it a few times you know the lack of structure uh, is the way I see it we we we, we sort of uh, get dragged to this reactive environment, um, predominantly because there's no structure to organise our resources to work any other way. And you have to react, you know, like when things fail, you have to do things. When things fail from a reliability perspective, we do RCA, we do five wires, and as Jeff has already mentioned, we might do that, you know, anywhere on the, on the spectrum of really, really badly and really, to really, really well. But, but even if you're doing it really, really well, still reacting to what's happening in the environment so it's a a natural trigger point we get a failure we've got to go do something so i think really where where you know reliability engineering is um is failing is is in the lack of structure and process around constantly performing reliability analysis work Um, you know we have this philosophy that people are still operating in that mindset of project related reliability work. You know, we apply RCM or PMO or maintenance task analysis or some process associated with designing the right strategies for our assets. Um, and then we put it in SAP or Maximo or some other enormous black hole and, and forget all about it. Um, and then we just react to what, what that delivers without constantly monitoring and improving. So yeah I think I think the lack of framework um, and process really that drives reliability engineering as a business as usual process is is really what's missing.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's something that I see a lot. And I also see people who've just become reliability people, like just the, the title change, but they have no, you know, education for it or no training for it. And they, I, cause I get, I get this question and I'm sure Jason, you get it all the time as well is just, where do I start? How do I begin? What do I do? And you know it's for me it's it's like it seems it seems across the board
2: I, it's a good it's a really good point rob i'm not and i'm not even sure exactly what's worse if we you know if we don't build people's capability is is that just as bad perhaps as as actually building people's capability but then not enabling them to actually apply it through lack of process and structure and guidance and standards you know you can you can build technical capability. Um, you, you can train people, even in things like RCA. You can do a really good RCA course. People can think that's a fantastic course, and they've learnt lots of good skills. They go back to their workplace. If there's no process around actually driving the use of that capability, then it almost goes to waste. You know, it's almost probably frustrating for the person who's built the capability, but can't but can't apply what they've learnt
0: i think on both ends of the spectrum it leads to disengagement like what you said about if you're highly trained and you're not and you can't apply you're really you get frustrated and then the other one where they're asking you something you're not qualified to do that's another way it breeds frustration now steve what do you think like obviously canadian perspective on mining but again like i don't think it really matters so what do you No,
3: think? Uh, i don't know why i was sh- Australia gets a reputation of being so much further ahead than uh, Canada in terms of reliability. And absolutely, there's some companies that are, and I think there's others that are just like we are. (laughs) um, But honestly, my my biggest, biggest issue in the mining industry is, you know, my favorite Einstein quote is, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. That is what we do all the time. I do the same analysis. I've probably, you know, I've seen some of your stuff. I I worked at tech after Rob. I'm working (laughs) on some of the same problems that Rob worked on when he was there. I've done it. Which was almost ten
0: years ago at this point.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like we keep doing the same, same tasks, but we're not actually learning from them. And so the question is, and it goes back exactly what Jeff and Jason said, is how do we how do we take all that um, put it into our people and our systems and so that it's usable um because we just keep running around the same circle without actually getting anywhere but at the end of the day we keep moving more dirt so <laughs>
0: <laughs> you can just you can just tell everyone that my work was terrible 10 years ago right <laughs> so we got a we got another question in the chat and steve we'll start off with you so the question came in and says what is the best approach to start the reliability journey if you're stuck in the reactive approach but they also mentioned that they have leadership support so that piece is out of the way
3: yeah that was literally my last job um, was where I was at a small mine and you know I I think I actually kind of took the wrong approach when I was there because I started I was like okay you know there's an appetite here let's um let's kind of look at maybe a mini rcm essentially just look at some failure modes let's see what we're doing and try and bring something around to that but quickly realized that that's not going to get me anywhere what the most the biggest thing that uh helped me out while i was there was just working with the tradesmen and on the floor asking them what their biggest problems are and trying to solve those because they're not going to get You're not going to necessarily capture the most value out of it, but you probably don't have the system set up to fully understand what value, what value each of your projects is going to have, but you can get a lot of value from making your frontline workers happy. And that's going to have a trickle up effect. uh, The management as well, happy workers are going to have better performance, less rework, better quality in general. And I I think that taking that approach, you might kind of muddy the line of where maintenance and reliability is but I think you're going to get a lot of buying from those projects to actually start doing some real reliability work
0: <laughs> you know you talk about muddying the line of maintenance and reliability <laughs> but it's like I even you know like I have a lot of conversations with some of the guys in the CI community and to be honest like sitting where I sit like I don't care if you call it Six Sigma or Kata or RCA or whatever like as long as you're adding value and you're getting people on board and you're making your site better like it doesn't really matter right yeah yeah exactly so jason what do you think like where should we be starting our reliability journey
2: yeah i get it looks, it's another good question isn't it? it i mean it depends a little um perhaps on size of organization and the org structures it sits and all those kind of things but but uh, you know Steve says spot on to me. You've got to, at the end of the day, you've got to get improvement. Um, And I think the way to do that is really start quite small. So you you perhaps don't need to be terribly formal about understanding where the problem assets are because people will know where they are uh, generally anyway. And if you solve people's problems, um, you're gonna gain some momentum. So I I like that idea. Um, I think what's important on what I would do if i you know if I went to work for an organization now um, and, and had that challenge in front of me I would I would spend a bit of time so pick, pick the asset or assets that you're going to work on and solve the problem for, for the appropriate people who see it as a problem um, engage the workforce who understand that asset spend a bit of time and, and and I would refine the strategy on it maybe not to a not an enormous project but but understand the failure modes and the tasks that we're putting in place to um, improve the performance, implement it, and then and then tackle the fact that we do actually go execute that maintenance well. And so I would pick something small, do it, implement it, and then make sure we, we look after it, right, initially, not sort of do the study, implement it, and then go look somewhere else. Like, I think it's really important to round that, that exercise out because that's the way you'll gain momentum and support and people will see the value. And then you start, you know, you start impacting culture and all those sort of things just naturally and organically through, through the value that it it will deliver. So sometimes I think organisations embark on big projects, you know, and and two things wrong with that. One is it takes a long time to get to the end game. uh, And number two, it costs a whole lot of money um, as well. And, And it keeps you in the project mindset rather than it's, it's pick something and do it and then start the process of looking after it and, and then engage people in that and build the culture as we go. So I'd, I'd start small, um, implement, monitor the execution. Like I, asset reliability, I, I don't know, I, I think of it as quite, I know there's lots of complexity around the edges, but at the end of the day, the reliability you get from an asset is gonna be based on how you operate it and how you look after it. So it's helped people operate it the right way as well, but predominantly we're we're, we're looking after how they care for their asset. How they care for it is just what they're gonna do to it, when they're gonna do it, and how well they do it, and then the fact that they actually do it. So get the strategy right, monitor that we execute the strategy, and and adjust and refine as we go for for something that that helps you gain momentum.
0: Yeah, I love it, I love it, and I think you know, that's one thing that I think often organizations get wrong is just not building the habit of sustaining. It's easy to just, you know, you get your RCM done or your FMEA done or whatever you're doing. The report goes out, you know, people put in, you know, like you even mentioned it, Jason, like they put it in SAP or Maximo and it changes the PM schedule, but there's no follow up after that. Or worst case, it sits on someone's bookshelf and and collects dust and so you know it's it's sustaining those habits is so huge
2: it's a great word habit i love that um i mean that's really that's really what it's about isn't it let's make it a habit so it's a business as usual process um the, the other thing perhaps that's worthy of thought here is because i we, i talk about this quite a lot with um people building capability and reliability teams because it's actually it's actually you can kind of break down the skill sets a little bit there, I think. Like if I was building capability in a, in a you know, if I went to, say, perhaps a larger organisation, they got some REs in place, uh, and, we, and we're focused on building capability of the team, you can go off and do a whole lot of technical training around sort of purist reliability capability, uh, and, and, how to, and how to conduct the big projects, like we're going to go review strategy and do RCM on, you know, all that critical assets or something crazy different skill set to actually building the habit and actually refining and looking after that strategy so I think sometimes we confuse that a little bit in organizations like I would be training people on how to how to form the habit right like what's the key pieces they need to understand to build and form the habit so they can look after strategy and reliability on an ongoing basis as opposed to how can they really can quickly conduct a, a project and be this sort of I don't know a brilliant facilitator of large projects right it's, a, it's, a, it's an entirely you can have both but they're entirely different skill sets you know and, and i would focus on building the habits it's you know, a good word and
0: and i would argue jason that yeah i mean i agree 100 percent. they're different skill sets but i would argue that that's probably the reason why we don't see as much reliability success as we should is we have a lot of people who are brilliant facilitators and whatever but we're not good as a community, as a community in communication and leadership in these human elements that actually drive the results.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think, I think it also um, depends on what you're rewarding. I mean, I, I agree with what Jason said. You you can put these systems in place and put the truck behind the wheel as you start to make improvements. But if you're still rewarding the people who are firefighting and working all weekend. Uh, 16 hours a day trying to get something back online and they're the ones that get all the credit. Well, guess what's going to happen? <laughs>
0: so Absolutely. Like no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And it's funny, actually, one of my in early in my career, I went to uh, one of the reliability gatherings. It was like one of the quarterly meetings and uh, high management person stood up and was talking about this great Reliability initiative, which was to take fixing this huge thing from a week to three days or something like that. And it was like, Aren't you missing the point here? Like, the point is not to fix it faster, the point is to prevent that fix in the first place.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So, Jeff, we got a question in the chat, and you can start us off here. And it came in and it said, The mining industry is known for large OPEX budgets. Do these large OPEX budgets improve reliability or can they promote poor reliability practices?
1: Uh, I think that they can, I believe they can uh, improve reliability, but some of the things I've seen, uh, you know, and probably others have seen it as well, where you have an office where all of the strategy work is done and there's a beautiful set of charts, that are indicating everything that that the senior management wants to see. But if you go out and ask the people on the floor or the reliability engineers, uh, they'll tell you it's a lot of rubbish. So, um, you know, I've seen companies spend exorbitant amounts of money on on that sort of tracking uh, in the background that doesn't penetrate to behaviours or system changes or improvements, you know, anywhere near the, the been that's been used on it, uh, others might have uh, different thoughts on it, but the, you know you can see some really significant gains I mean you can have an individual come in and uh, really know their stuff and see see with fresh eyes uh, the things that people can't see anymore because they 've been there so long and just accept the behaviors and accept how things are run and fixed but uh, you can make some massive changes uh, with with uh, um, a, a big budget obviously but a small one as well <laughs> it's not all about money i'd say
0: uh, no i 100% agree now steve what do you what do you see like opex versus capex
3: uh, i get i get frustrated with the distinction actually cuz it's um <laughs> at the end of the day it's it's about the total cost of ownership of an asset um, like we've talked about it plenty, Rob, like when's the ideal time to retire a haul truck and just buy a new one? <laughs> well, if you have a CapEx when you're looking at your CapEx budget, if you can keep that truck running under OpEx, that's great. You keep your CapEx low, but it's inflating your OpEx and it's just it's such a weird uh tug of war game when at the end of the day it's how much money are we actually going to be spending to operate this thing? And is it worth it to get a new one? Forget about the where that distinction lies is well, let's just figure out the most effective way to use the money available to us.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I agree with that. <laughs> and if you're looking at my old tech work, uh, you'll see <laughs> many reports on that. I'm sure. Uh, I, I mean, I see it too. I see it now, especially like I work mainly on the CapEx side right now. and when. People don't get capex to make replacements; they'll push stuff into opex, whether that's repairs or that's you know these other type kind of like uh, jerry rigging it together a little bit. And so it does, I think, in my opinion, increase some of the cost of ownership just overall because if you keep having to do these repetitive replacements, you might not be getting anywhere. So we got another question in the chat. So Jason, we'll start off with you. And so the question comes in and he's basically asking, how should we target defect elimination efforts? In his experience, they're trying to cast the net too wide. And however, he's trying to figure out like, where's the balance in terms of the volume of failures that you're trying to prevent? or the confidence level that you have.
2: Um, there's a few things running through my head right now. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that we, we have to think about how to deal with all the failures that we've had and which ones we analyze and which ones we don't, you know? <laughs> we've got a few too many going on. We don't really, not really in control of our assets, unfortunately. Um, look, I think, uh, you know, you, I would suggest that you've got to have a defined process in place. Part of the process for me would be that you you pretty much log um, events that should they should be in, being logged somewhere anyway. Uh, as part of the exercise, you should quantify the impact. Absolutely, pretty straightforward, um, and and some kind of indication of either likelihood or frequency. You know, how often has it happened, or what's the likelihood of it happening just so you can quantify the impact. I mean, that's the only only real sensible way to prioritise which defects you tackle. It it is certainly a case, and and then really then there's just trigger points, right? So, you know, we quantify the impact and then, you know, it's almost like you've got to have this process around what triggers us to go do a review. And it might be on the basis of a certain cost impact or, you know, production impact or, perhaps a safety exposure, and they might be slightly different levels, but if you understand the impact of problems and you, you follow sort of this sort of trigger process, then you should, you should be working on the right things that will add value. Um, but you may need to adjust those trigger points um, to, to sort of give you the right volume of activity to perform. And that's, and that's really just an organisational decision yeah. around. Well, for a person's role, how much time are they expected to solve problems versus do other things? And how many can they, can they squeeze into that time allocation that they have? Um, I'd certainly advocate um, doing fewer but doing them well than doing lots and just not following through. Like I think that's <laughs> probably where we get to at some point because there's so many problems and we don't formalize the trigger points. We end up with lots of stuff um, to do maybe the analysis is okay but the, you know the implementation of the actions and we fall over on the tracking of those and making sure they worked and all those sorts of things and so it's a bit it's a bit scattergun and, and really doesn't drive the outcomes that it that it could i think
1: i don't yeah. agree with that i, I think Go sorry ahead. rob i agree with that i think uh, with what jason's saying there um we, we can't tackle every problem with a with a rca or something like that we, we have to pick pick our battles the ones that make the most business sense not just not just with the, let's get us back on track, but which ones are gonna give us potentially some extra business benefit. Like you know, if we do this and and fix it up properly, then we could get some extra, we have a 10% gain to get through the plant or whatever it is that we're doing. So uh, we need to go after a few of the issues and attack them with intent. So do them really, really thoroughly and uh, and make sure that we get Um, A a palliative offerings really as as solutions to to um, be able to come up with the best one to take the business forward
0: well yeah I mean to me I mean we mentioned we talk habits right and it's to me Mm -hmm. it's the same thing it's if we're just jumping project to project you know we're not building habits we're just you know compiling nice reports and nice graphs and all those metrics you talked about Jeff and it's you know, it's, we're not actually doing anything in terms of improvements. Yeah, one pretty, of
1: the, easy to, pretty easy to have paralysis by analysis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Go
3: ahead. Steve. One, of, one of the the things that you you could do if you're being inundated with just your number of failures and instead of trying to dissect each and every one and capturing that data is obviously important, but if it's just, you could do an RCA on um, like understanding why you're having so many failures as a whole and forget about the individual ones. You can look into, like uh, we, I had a truck fleet um, that I was looking after that just had awful availability. I was trying to look into each failure and just, just was not possible. So we took a step back and we say, okay, why are we having all these failures to begin with? And then you start looking at it and you're like, okay, well, maybe our PMs aren't being done properly and you know fixing a systemic issue might actually solve or at the very least reduce some of those um, larger a variety of failure modes and then once you start to get that stuff under control like if your PMs are not your top priority you're gonna have lots of failures that's just how mining on a mobile fleet works <laughs> um, and so if you can tackle that one as your first defect is that defect in that process you'll probably have more success than if you try to tackle individual failures.
0: I th- I like that approach. And I think it's something we've talked about before with respect to root cause analysis is, you know, when we talk to Bob and Bob always pushes this, this thought about, you know, the chronic failures are the ones that actually cost us the most money versus these big one-off events that typically are the ones that they do RCA on. And if, you know, he talks about how those latent roots are really business processes and those are the ones that really solve more problems than just the one. And so I think, I think you're on the right track there where if we can pull it back and understand, is it a people issue? Is it a training issue? Is it whatever issue it is and find that we're, we're better off than looking at, you know, front wheel hub spindles or something. So we got another question come in. How do we feel about adaptability given, you know, COVID and some of the the uh, changing business landscapes? Jason, do you want to start us off with this one?
2: Sure. I think I understand the question. We, we, we've done a bit of content recently around, around this. Um, it's too, I mean, adaptability is one thing, which I would suggest we're really, really bad at. Um, right now um, and and you can you can always test this right you, i do it quite often we go into organizations and, and quiz them a little of, about their reliability strategies and practices and maintenance plans and invariably people have looked at their strategies There's usually only a couple of drivers one we're going to a new version of sap or something so we've got to take it out of one system and put it into another one so we might we might have a quick look when we do that or we might just translate the data we had a really poor performing asset Five years ago we engaged some consultants to go look at a strategy on something or perhaps something even worse like we adjusted the operation schedule so therefore we just went into SAP and changed the 12-week shut to a 16-week shut and, and crossed, their, crossed their fingers a little. You're typical drivers for changing strategy but, but invariably that's been done at some point in the past and the strategies remain the same and, and to me we're just at the mercy then of the operations Operations are changing all the time. Assets are aging and failing in different ways. You know, market conditions are different. All, all sorts of stuff going on. And and we just can't adapt to that at all from a reliability strategy perspective. We just we just leave the systems in place. And we just try and respond through, you know, reactive stuff. Again, like we look at failures and we try and understand why it failed. And it's all revision stuff. So, I, you know, I've got a, a really poor opinion of how, how well um, we can adapt to the the environment we're in. So then you overlay COVID on that, and all the changes that occurred as a result of that. Yeah, I think we we there's probably several organisations running at a heightened level of risk right now, w- without really understanding what that is and 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 how it's been created. And and it's understandable from a business perspective. Obviously, the focus is is people safety. Right. And and so that clearly that's where the focus when it's COVID hit and we went into lockdown and sites got sort of locked down and all sorts of things changing. But you know, when you, when you have the same group of people on a site, I, I was talking to someone yesterday where 12 weeks, they've been stuck on the site. right? These are people that are normally in a fly in fly out environment, but um, can't, can't get out different country, can't get out the site. Uh, I know a few cases like that or, or even the ones where, you know, it's domestic, FIFO and and the rosters, we've doubled the roster, so we've reduced the the sort of transit uh, frequency. So there's all sorts of things changing. Uh, We've probably got some impacts around uh, materials and logistics, right, getting spare parts and those kind of things. Number of things changing, as they should have, to protect human safety. We've sort of missed, I think, the the exercise in understanding any risk that's created to our assets and how we maintain them and look after them. Because we don't have any existing process, again, we'll come back to process, everyone, like process in place or structure in place, it helps us be adaptable to to the changing environment. All, all that's happened is we've experienced more change in a shorter period of time than we normally do. The fact is, we can't adapt in, in a normal environment, let alone one that's under increased uh, pace <laughs> of change.
0: Yeah, I know. I love a lot of what you said there, Jason. And I was just thinking we, we should. Uh, Convert the haul trucks to transporting hand sanitizer or something, you
2: know? <laughs> so, some operations went from, you know, single shift per day to 24 7 operations. I wonder how much work they did around, you know, asset care uh, with, with those changes. Um, fascinating some some organizations sort of turned down duty so a whole lot of changes right that that occurred and um yeah i'm not sure we've as as an asset management discipline that we're really on top of how to adapt to that well
0: i'm sure we'll see the results in either next year or the year after (laughs) you'll get a lot of phone calls jason
2: (laughs) maybe
0: So Steve, I got this question come in and and I kind of like it because, you know, I I used to do a lot of stuff on spare parts. And so the question that came in is what is the strategy for managing stores as there are additional challenges for remote locations? Should we have big stores? Should we have just-in-time inventory? Like, what do you think?
3: You know, when you're looking at a remote location, just-in-time it's still just in time, but the, <laughs> the problem is it takes a longer time to get there. So you you have to keep more stuff up. Like if you're in one of the mines in Northwest Territories, a lot of your stuff can only come up on ice roads. Well, you're going to want to stock up for the year. But like where we where I am right now, I'm two hours from a major center, less than a day away from Seattle and some other some other big areas. Just in time inventory and you know more vendor managed inventory is probably a really good idea because there's that cost to storing something there's the people around it there's the degradation that happens you know all that stuff around your inventory and the less you have to keep on site the better some places you know you've got the added benefit like for us we've got five mines in a close area so we can uh, i guess it's four mines now but so we can share a lot of our warehousing and a lot of our critical spares and we can understand that but if you're a mine all on its own, you're going to have a big, big uh, cost burden on those critical spares and understanding that it's definitely a big topic. I haven't seen anybody do it particularly well, but it's you're definitely looking at ma- my
0: old work. then, Steve. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Well, and I will give tech credit, like uh, the inventory management here is definitely, you know, we, we don't have a lot of that issues with um, spare parts, but again, we're pulling from four, four different mine warehouses where we can pull some stuff. Like every mine has their issues. Um, looking at your hot shots, I, you know, that's always where I'd start is, okay, what are we rushing in? Maybe our min max is set wrong. Who's decided what, how the min maxes are set. You know, that, that type of analysis is usually where I'd start off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For me, I mean, obviously I worked on it a lot at tech and the I mean, when I started working on it for some of the components, like the min maxes were way out of whack. We had no idea in terms of the difference between, you know, a remote site versus one that's there. I don't think there's too much difference. It just changes the math a little bit, right? Like your yes, lead time's so time. going to be more or, you know, like you mentioned it, like I think when, when I was looking at one of the sites up North, it was like, 10 cents per pound to ship something by ice road or by boat and it was a dollar a pound to fly it up there so if you're doing some something like that you know it's going to make a big difference on how many you're going to store because if you run out in the summer you're kind of hooped right so yeah i mean in terms of that it's just basically looking at it doing some spare parts optimization saving tons of money because it's usually there we got another question in the chat. Jeff, I think this one, you'll you'll like this one. So the question comes in. It says, I've seen many methods at Mines to create visible safety systems to optimize value and effectiveness. As reliability is similar, what recommendations would you have in this regard? So basically, safety visible systems for reliability or some comparison between reliability and safety.
1: Uh, I think when you look at those, you need to. Oh, we really need to think about safety and reliability in the same way. So I don't know if anyone's seen Ron Moore, but he's really big on professing. that they that should be in the same statements. So I think there's uh, there's the, some of the goals that need to be set to bring reliability into the picture with all different departments is to have some skin in the game in their targets and tracking. So, you know, maintenance are, reliable, uh, are responsible for some of the uptime, and and production responsible for some of the maintenance costs. So, you, you don't have a "we break it and you fix it" mentality, and uh, you can you can start leveraging the the results on that across the board. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, I think it's you know, reliability is everyone in this together, and we're working on all sorts of problems. And uh, resolving them from procurement you know, right through to the um, uh, dispatch.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I just got a question in the chat, and I, it took my attention hey. away. <laughs> that's <laughs> and that's okay. gonna That's gonna be a hard question. Uh, so I think we'll skip that one. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah. So Jason, what do you think about reliability and safety? Like how are they intertwined? Should we be, I mean, obviously we've, we've, I think most of us have seen the Ron Moore study that, that correlates OEE well correlates OEE with safety. Like, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, look, I think we can learn a lot from how safety has been approached in organizations. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I think we've got to be careful how we go about it. Um, I've I've seen I've seen attempts that have perhaps detracted more than added value so the the common one is we think about safety and we have a a purpose to get to zero harm or something like that and and so people have reflected that across to reliability and sort of talked about zero failures and those kind of things which of course is is not really the goal so it's I think the danger then is if you kind of sort of make those statements and then people see things fail and the organisation not really take any action or worry about that, then you're not gonna get anywhere, right? That's a significant impact on the culture. So we can learn a lot from how safety's gone about it, which to me is they had the right purpose statement and then you have gotta have the right purpose statement from a reliability perspective. And then you build the framework around how you actually approach it, you know? So you build the exercise of safety into our daily work lives and we we build the behaviours to support the outcomes that we want so, you know, we're talking, we're talking sort of culture, reliability culture now, really, that, that we've got to have the right purpose statement so we know where we're heading and, and the organisation is clear about that's the purpose and we do everything we can to arrive at the purpose. So you've got to be careful about what you state that to be. And then you can build a framework around how you're actually going to go get there and build stuff into your, to your daily um, working life that, that builds the behaviours you want to build that culture and, and arrive at that purpose. So really valuable exercise but got to be done with intent and well
0: (laughs) just like everything right (laughs) no it's it's definitely true And, and i mean the the organizations like that do well at safety it is part of the culture right and it's like i i see if we could do that with reliability which we talked about most people don't then that's the real way to get to get success that we don't often see and so you know, it starts with people and habits for me, and that's where that's where I'm at with this. Last question, Steve, before we get into the plugs. Um, this one will be right up your alley. So what are the top three to five metrics that you think are important in mobile maintenance when it comes to asset health?
3: You know, availability is obviously key. Um, understanding that is definitely important. And one, you know, this one, uh, you're probably going to laugh, Rob, because we've disagreed on this one and talked about this one before, but I, I really like MTBF. Um, it's a good well, measure. Just
0: don't say it too loud because Fred Schenkelberg will come in here and beat you down.
3: <laughs> um, but it, it's a good measure of understanding like, like if your PMs are being effective on your mobile equipment because, you know, we, if you have it where your MTBF is 50 hours, well, why are we bringing in a truck? every 500 hours, yet we're keep having to go to it every 50 hours after that. That doesn't seem like we're doing something effectively. And I find that it's actually a good place to start asking questions and understand what's driving that MTBF. Um, Along with that, there's also, you know, just general cost. What is your maintenance cost? How much you're spending on it? But understanding how that relates to what you're operating has something changed in, in, in your operation to affect costs? Are you running the trucks harder? Um, like with those three metrics, you're going to come, you're going to get pretty, some pretty detailed information on what's happening um, with your assets. Um, but there's also like PM compliance. Like I always harp on it a bit. It's PMs, PMs, PMs. You got to spend the time. You got to make sure that backlog is, is cleaned up before you send that uh, asset back out to service. Otherwise you're just going to see it see it again sooner than you want um it's pm and schedule compliance
0: yeah no i mean for for me the reason we talk about mtbf as not being the be-all end-all is basically it's an average right and it's like if we have an average we can't really do any under there's no real understanding around it where we can dive into it and sort of suss out what's going on and what to do about it. And so that's where kind of the, the nerds on the call, I know Andre (laughs) is one and I'm one, uh, you know, we like to have a little more granularity.
3: (laughs) Well, and we've kind of modified our thinking of it as well. Like we, I I like to think about it as um, time to first down. How long did you, were you able to achieve without that unit going down after it rolled out a PM and then take that issue tackle that issue and then what happens next once that one's solved what's the next one that's bringing it down and then you know you can slowly make your way through to hopefully getting a full pm cycle without actually having something
0: that's the dream right <laughs> I haven't seen it yet <laughs> <laughs> so we'll wrap up here steve do you have anything to plug
3: um you know i i think i've said it a couple times but keep buying the coal <laughs> um but no i'm uh, just appreciate everybody taking the time to watch your webinars there, Rob, but um, I've had a lot of fun doing it, and you know you've been helped teach me a lot about reliability so <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we do our best I, I thanks for joining us too today, Steve. Jason, do you have anything to plug?
2: Uh, look not particularly Rob. I mean people. Can can get our website, look at some of our content uh, on, on our website or on LinkedIn. Um, so not not particular. I just think these are really valuable forums. So thank you for organising it. Um, I love the discussion. I think all these discussions just move us move us forward. Um, it's clearly no one's uh, truly in control of their assets uh, right now. So so these discussions just just add value to moving us closer to that. I think so. I appreciate being involved.
0: No, absolutely. And thanks for joining us. And yeah, you can check them out, armsreliability.com. Jeff, do you have anything to plug?
1: Uh, well, I'd like to plug your, your efforts first up. And, uh, uh, you know, when I, when I heard, um, you know, we've all been hearing about these change of cycles of the FIFO, particularly. And other times I've stayed in mine camps in the Dongas. Uh, you know, you close the door on the on that donger and it's the closest thing you can feel to prison at times, I think. So if you've got people going through a month cycle of um, going in and closing the door and the same people all the time and the same jobs, it's hard to keep people up and motivated. But also the mental health things that come with that can be soul-destroying, especially if you've got problems at home. So the one thing I would plug if you're okay with it is our, is our mental health and... Uh, um, psychological safety webinar that we've got coming up that, that you and I are in. And I think uh, the more we can spread the word about it's okay to talk about this stuff, the better for people.
0: Yeah. And that webinar coming up, it's July 9th, 6 to 8 PM mountain time for, for me and my audience. Um, but it'll be July 10th from noon to two. Is that New Zealand standard time?
1: It's uh, it's well, we're, we're We'll have people in there from around the world, I think, but um, but yeah, New Zealand time. So it's on, it's all on our website. If you have a look at dot au, we'll have a look at that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That one will be good. And I, I think you, you know, Jeff, like obviously thanks for, for joining us today, but I think Jeff, you know, like Jason mentioned 12 weeks on site, we were talking a little bit about it here and to me, I see, like when when we got this question that came in, it was like, what's the biggest problem in mining in general? Like, that's how I took the question. And I think for me, I look at it and I was looking at statistics last weekend and mining has three times the suicide rate of the general population, which is because of these things. Like people are at sites, they're working 12 hour shifts or they're rotating from days to nights. There's a lot of loneliness we have this macho culture. We're not talking about our feelings and it's literally killing us. And, yeah, and to
1: It's a massive issue, massive issue.
0: Yeah. And to me, this is the biggest issue that we have in mining. And just personally, you know, it's, it's my mission to change that, to talk about that and to talk about the ways that we can, as an industry, help these people and really open that culture up. And so, you know, for me, plugs, you know, just join us, you know, in July, go to, what was the website again, Jeff?
1: It's S I R F R I'll put a post up about it again in the coming days, but it, it's the post that you've shared, Rob.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like everyone who's on this, you'll get an email, uh, in the next few days, with my upcoming events, and it'll be in there. So definitely come out, check that out, and yeah, let's open up the conversation. So thanks for thanks for joining us. We'll wrap up here. So that, you know, everyone, get, Steve, Jason, Jeff, I really appreciate you guys spending an, an hour of your time with us today, and thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks, Rob. I
1: appreciate it. Been a pleasure. 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 Thanks. Thank you. I'm we'll you